Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the Venture Fuel podcast. At Venture Fuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. This month on the Venture Fuel podcast, we have focused on sustainability, innovations and collaborations to save the planet. And I'm not going to lie, at certain points, it's been a little disheartening and frustrating. What can we and can't we eat? Which products are actually sustainable? And is there anything we can do as individuals to actually make a difference? On today's show, we have David Whiteside, who is an individual making a difference, and he has a plan for how you can help. I actually met David in high school at the Altamont School in Birmingham, Alabama. His family has been fighting for civil rights in Alabama for over 150 years. His great uncle, Judge Frank Johnson, made a number of landmark civil rights rulings to help end segregation that forever altered the face of the South. In 1998, David's godfather, Bobby Kennedy Jr., introduced David to the Waterkeeper Alliance, which is what we're going to talk about today. Part of that is the Riverkeeper. The first Riverkeeper patrol boat was launched by military veterans and fishermen in the 60s to challenge polluters in the Hudson River. They contributed to the Hudson's amazing recovery. It inspired then the growth of nearly 200 different autonomous waterkeeper organizations around the world. David wrote his senior thesis at UVM about creating a few of these in Alabama. He officially launched several, and in 2009, he founded the Tennessee Riverkeeper. Today, we're going to talk about the role of individuals in keeping our waters clean, what corporations can do to become a solution rather than the problem, and what the future holds for our planet. So let's get after it. David, we have not talked in 20 plus years, uh, but in a nod to the upside of social media, I've actually been able to watch all the great work you've been doing to protect the waters. And uh, man, I'm super excited to uh, reconnect. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Freddie. Thanks for having me on. So we know each other from the Altamont School in Birmingham, Alabama. And then you reminded me right before we got on that we also know each other through your mom's tennis tournaments, which brought me back. I hadn't thought about USTA tennis in a long time. So I'm going to turn it over to you for a minute. Let's talk a little bit about being raised by entrepreneurs and founders. Sure. Well, my mother was a passionate tennis player, and she was also an entrepreneur and ended up starting the largest USTA tennis tournament in Alabama. But she also believed in getting children and teenagers active and giving them activities to do and and then trying to nurture the growth of United States tennis. So she also founded a series of tennis tournaments called the Novice Tennis Tournaments, which were entry-level tournaments for kids to learn tennis, to learn the tournament structure, to get involved in competitive tennis. And eventually, a lot of them went on to the USTA towards rankings and US tennis. So we know each other through that. You're always one of my mom's favorite tennis players in those tournaments. And then we ended up going to junior high and high school together at Altamont. We weren't the same class, but our school is fifth through 12th grade. And one of the benefits of that is you end up knowing a lot of people older and younger, um, beyond what you would normally go to school with. But also, I was raised by my godfather, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who founded the Waterkeeper Alliance. 
my father started his own law firm. So I was surrounded by this entrepreneurial climate that um, taught me a lot and inspired me. And uh, I've been creating businesses and nonprofits ever since. I love it. Well, can you talk about... And just you telling that story, we didn't even talk about it ahead of time. But man, I remember the novice tennis tournament. I remember getting uh, excited and involved in tennis because of your mom. You just brought me back to a really happy, uh, happy set of memories. Crazy, man. That, that was a long time ago. But back to sort of the, the point of this, can you talk about your godfather and how you got involved in the Waterkeeper Alliance originally and, and where you've sort of taken it to today? Sure. Well, um, I come from a, a legacy of civil rights heroes. It goes back to before the Civil War. But my family, my maternal ancestors in Alabama, um, my mother's ancestors, they got together in Winston County and voted to secede from the Confederacy because they didn't want to fight a war over slavery and declared the free state of Winston. And then other relatives were elected sheriff of counties of Alabama and fought the Ku Klux Klan as sheriff in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when it was really dangerous to do that. And then fast forward, my family played a pivotal role in the civil rights movement, desegregating the South. So I have this drive to help others and this interest in continuing my family's civil rights legacy, and it's in my DNA. As soon as I found out about pollution and the injustice of that and, and how wrong the pollution is, I was in the first grade, I really just learned how to read, and I was instantly angry and passionate about that issue. I had always been like interested in fighting bullies and, and helping the less fortunate and all of that. That was just how I was raised. And the, the pollution really angered me. And I, I was very passionate about it instantly. I came home that day and I started talking to my mom about pollution and what I learned and how wrong it was. And she said, well, you should talk to your godfather. That's what he does. And at the time, my godfather, Bobby Kennedy, was we were very close. He was one of my best friends at the time, and I loved him, and we, we, he was a good godfather to me, but I didn't know that he fought pollution. So we talked that day, and, and I never looked back. I pretty much decided that I wanted that to be my career that day. I was raised by lawyers as well, so eventually, by the sixth grade, I had determined that I wanted to be an environmental lawyer and sue polluters. And uh, I never really looked back. And quickly, the, the Riverkeeper movement, the Waterkeeper Alliance was founded by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in 1999. But the first Riverkeeper was started on the Hudson River by commercial fishermen in 1966. So that river, New York and New Jersey's Hudson River, really was the starting point for the modern environmental law movement and the modern environmental movement period. And those fishermen, these were not your traditional environmentalists, got together and reclaimed the Hudson, which at the time was one of the most polluted rivers in the world. And that miraculous recovery led to the inspiration of 350 waterkeepers around the world. And Bobby was our leader. He's the founder of the Waterkeeper Alliance. He served as president for 20 years. And it was always my intent to try to bring the movement down to Alabama, Tennessee, and the Deep South, where it's needed most. And that has been more successful than I could have possibly dreamed. I love everything about this. First off, I, I did a triathlon in the Hudson, uh, man, 10 years ago or so. And it was to raise awareness of how clean the waters have gotten here. And, and I grew up, uh, before I moved to Alabama, in New York City, and I mean, it was like, you know, you didn't even go close to the Hudson. And so hearing that story was really, really cool. And I think one of the things that's most interesting is this whole month, Venture Fuel has been very focused on uh, sustainability and water conservation, circular economy, plastic alternatives. 
we've been looking at a lot of new solutions, which is super exciting, but it also sometimes feels that these problems are insurmountable, that there's just so much that has sort of been done. How do you sort of cope with that, that feeling? And then what is your advice to maybe individuals listening out there that want to make a difference, but maybe are held back because they feel that their individual contribution might not make a dent in, in what is a pretty daunting uh, task in front of us? That's a great question. And certainly, uh, these are depressing issues. I've always been an optimist and I was, you know, I was born to do this. So there's a few things that I have to kind of keep in mind at all times in order to avoid depression or feeling beleaguered or worn down from going to war against pollution every day of my life. First and foremost, as I said, I was born to do this, but I do not have to face the violence that my ancestors had to deal with on a daily basis in Alabama and you know, going from the 1860s to the 1970s and 80s, quite frankly. The Ku Klux Klan was burning crosses in my maternal ancestors' yards. They firebombed my great-grandmother's house twice in Montgomery, Alabama, because they knew they couldn't scare the male family members that were really leading the charge against George Wallace and Bull Connor and the, these racist bastards and the Jim Crow South. So they started targeting the female ancestors in my family and to try to, because they figured if we can't scare the men, we can scare them by, you know, threatening the lives of the women in their family. And that is a really scary tactic. And, you know, my family from the 1950s to the 1980s was one of the most hated white families in the South. And, you know, I certainly when we sue polluters, when we sue a Fortune 100 company, a job creator, as they're called sometimes, or when we sue, a municipality or a big city, we make a lot of enemies. But um, you know, I've never had to worry about my house getting firebombed or showing up to home at night and having the Ku Klux Klan burn across in my yard. So I always keep that in perspective. And then, you know, I have to remain optimistic too. And and I've been blessed to be surrounded by some of the most passionate and dedicated and effective warriors for improving this planet on the globe. And I'm you know, I'm also very fortunate. I'm surrounded by a lot of some very entertaining people too. My godfather's entertaining, Cheryl Hines, Alicia Silverstone, all of these people keep me uplifted and happy. And I'm very, very, I'm the luckiest environmentalist on the planet because I have them in my life. It's interesting. I want to kind of, I'll come back to some of the names you just mentioned there, because you've been doing some exciting things on that front. But I also want to go back to the litigation piece. Um, because you know, one of the tools that you all have been using, uh, and you mentioned your background, is suing corporations that have done the wrong things, which is incredibly important. And I love the holding them honest. I have a question for you in that, do you think that there is an opportunity for forward-thinking corporations, so not the, the evildoers, right, to be a potential solution in this as much or more so than the negligent corporations that have been such a problem in the past? Yes, and thank you for talking about that. I love talking about free market capitalism. I believe very strongly in it. I think it's the most effective way of distributing the goods and creating jobs and creating a true market economy. But you have to have that with a level playing field. I love sports analogies. So, you know, look at it as football. We got to have a level playing field. And unfortunately, in too many instances, the, uh, the football field is tilted towards the bigger corporation or the bully corporation that can hire lobbyists where the people can't. But I 
you know, I try as much as I have these horrific super villains of corporate polluters, Fortune 100 companies, Fortune 500 companies that I've been fighting my whole life or, or recently. I always try to even that out, balance the scale with corporations that I love and that are, that are socially responsible and making money by doing the right thing. And the number one, really what gives me hope in the capitalist country that we live in is Patagonia. I yeah. cannot say enough about Patagonia. Full disclosure, they have sponsored my work and have funded my river keepers for over a decade. And I couldn't do this without them, but they are just, you know, I call them out on their problems and they are worth, they know about them and put me in touch with their experts to help solve these problems. So they are as much a part of the solution. The clothing industry is not perfect and Patagonia knows that and they are leading the way in fixing their industry, but they're also leading their way in the socially responsible corporations and saying, look at us, you know, the more we do to help the planet, the more radical our concepts are, like giving away all of our profits on Black Friday towards the groups, the, the environmental groups they fund, that created more ad dollars than it did if they kept that because it just, everyone was talking about it. It right. kind of went viral on social media. It really brought the right kind of attention to Patagonia. People were talking about it on the news for free. And it was, you know, people thought they were crazy for doing that. But at Patagonia, they know what they're doing. And every time they take a step in the right direction, they're rewarded, they're compensated nicely for it. And those guys just are, as far as a massive corporation that certainly has environmental problems, they are doing everything right. And they give me so much hope and inspiration. I tell them that as much as I can. They do events for Riverkeeper. You know, they're figuring out ways to uh, reduce or to, to make rain jackets that don't have the PFAS coating on it, which is the chemical that we're suing 3M for. It's a horrific chemical. They're not using the banned PFAS, but right now the whole industry is still using an alternate to that. And Patagonia is leading the charge to figure out a way to stop using those chemicals for water repellent clothing. Yeah, it's so cool. Actually, right before this, I was hosting a, a conference and one of the case studies I showed was, was Patagonia and the work they're doing around uh, sort of the fishing nets that are making up so much of the sort of plastic in the ocean that it's sort of underreported, right? Like everyone talks about plastic straws, yet this giant dump of garbage in between Hawaii and California, like over 50% of it is like discarded fishing net. And they've been sort of working in Latin America and Central America on taking that, recycling it, using it for all their, their hats moving forward as well as other products. So I certainly can echo them as a corporation that we see that's sort of embracing startups, new technologies, and, and new ways of thinking. And obviously, they talk the talk. And, and I like the fact that they're honest about it, right? They know that they're not perfect. Interesting, right before we recorded this episode, VentureFuel hosted a sustainability summit where we talked about corporations and startups collaborating together to drive the change we want to see in the world. We shared a bunch of interesting case studies. I'd be happy to email it to anybody. Just go to VentureFuel at LinkedIn shoot us a note, I'll send you a copy of the deck. But we looked at things like Diageo and Unilever and Pepsi coming together with a company called Pulpix to create a first of its kind scalable paper-based bottle. We looked at how Patagonia is upcycling uh, fishing nets to create their hats moving forward. One of the more popular and famous versions is Adidas's partnership with Parlay for the Ocean, where they take marine pollution and turn it into sportswear taking threat and turning it into threat. Uh, there were 16 different examples we went into. So again, just go to VentureFuel at LinkedIn. I'm happy to share that with you. Uh, and now let's get back to the show.
So switching gears. So I want to talk about your downstream event because I mean the list here, and I don't mean to name drop, but Alicia Silverstone, Jackson Brown, Lyle Lovett, Bill Burr, the comedian who I love, Cheryl Hines, uh, three-time Olympic gold medalist, Kerry Walsh Jennings. This was a huge event uh, that you put together. The piece that, that jumped to me was that you had a quote in the press release. These musicians and hosts are Republicans and Democrats and libertarians who understand that clean water is a nonpartisan issue. We can help unite our divided country by building a bridge over troubled waters. First off, shows that Altamont did a good job teaching you to write, because that's a great, great line. But can you talk about how... Thank you, Mr. Palmer. <laughs> there you go, right? I just found it such an uplifting quote, right? That it doesn't matter where you sit politically, that we can all kind of get behind this need for clean water. Talk about the event a little bit, how it came together and, and what it did for your organization. Sure, thank you. Well, we produce, Tennessee Riverkeeper produces a major fundraising event every year. And it usually involves, it's usually in Nashville and it usually involves a musical component of, in some capacity. In January, 2020, right before the lockdowns, we did a massive fundraiser at Warner Music on Music Row in Nashville. And we had Chris Jansen perform, a very prominent country musician. And it was hosted by Warner Music and the CEO, John Esposito, Espo, as he's called, who is a, a kingmaker in Nashville and one of the greatest environmentalists I know and one of our secret weapons in doing what we do. He's not so secret weapon. I thank him as much as I can. So I love you, Espo. But uh, that event, you know, we couldn't do one after the lockdown. So I had the idea to do a virtual event. I wasn't a fan of doing the virtual events for many reasons, but you just got to do them now. Um, certainly it has a smaller environmental footprint, but it, um, it doesn't resonate as much with the people in attendance and it doesn't raise as much money. And it's just, it's a, become a part of our, our budget and what we do to do a major event every year with a keynote speaker and things like that. One of the benefits of doing a, a virtual fundraiser was it wasn't produced live. This was all pre-recorded videos and song performances uh, and tributes to Riverkeeper. And so I was able to recruit a lot more of my entertaining friends, entertainment industry friends to do this. And that's why you saw such an impressive lineup. It would have been very difficult to pull that off in person because of all of our busy schedules. But uh, it was actually pulled off very quickly. It was a lot easier to organize the virtual event than the in-person events. It usually takes us three or four months, a team, a production team of three or four months to do these concert fundraisers, whereas it took me about maybe a month to do the virtual event. And uh, I just started texting a lot of my friends and they all said, yes, absolutely, of course. And the lineup just kept growing from there. But you know that lineup, it just ended up getting so big, I had to stop texting my friends. That lineup is illustrative of the kind of wonderful, loving support that I have in my life and for this organization. And that really, all of those people on that lineup really keep me going. It was awesome. So, David, what's next for you and Tennessee Riverkeeper? Well, there's never a shortage of work and pollution issues, unfortunately. So, we're heavily involved in the plastics pollution fight right now. And we were dragged into that. It was always something I was interested in, but we were really officially dragged into that by National Geographic running a cover article in December 2018 on freshwater microplastics in the Tennessee River. And up until that time, the discussion of microplastics and plastics in waterways was centered heavily, almost exclusively, on the ocean. You know, you, the huge garbage patches in the middle of the Pacific and, and in the gyres 
and just plastics breaking down, the, the straw in the sea turtle's nose, all of that. It was all focused on plastics in the ocean and no one was talking about plastics in freshwater systems. Mm. And National Geographic partnered with some of the best aquatic scientists, microplastic aquatic scientists in the world, including some at the Tennessee Aquarium in Chattanooga, which is why they picked the Tennessee River. And they found that the Tennessee River and its tributaries contain some of the highest levels of microplastics of any known freshwater system in the world that we've monitored so far. And again, the science is still new on this. But uh, And they ran the story on the cover of National Geographic. It went viral and uh, really changed the national conversation about plastics. Because we realized it wasn't just on your beach, you know, in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. It was in the creek. It was in your streets. It was in our backyards. And we already had enough issues on our plate. We were suing 3M for PFAS pollution, which is a chemical that was used to produce Teflon and Scotchgard. DuPont and 3M were making it. It's a forever chemical. It won't break down in water or the environment. It's a horrific chemical that causes harm to public health in some instances, in some forms. And it's a suspected carcinogen. But it is one of the most complicated pollution issues and environmental issues I've ever worked on. And we had just taken that on a few years before. And here we have to take plastics on. And that's part of the problem with the Tennessee River. It's such a beautiful river. It's one of the most aquatically diverse in the world, but it's also one of the most polluted. And that means that I, you know, for better or worse, I never get bored is, I guess, the only silver lining. I'm always learning, which I love. Um, and there's never a shortage of a different issue for me to work on. If I get burned out on one, I can pivot and then come back to the other. But um, the Tennessee River allows me this polluted canvas to be able to work on almost any pollution issue out there. The microplastics, I really think, is going to be one of the monumental environmental issues for the next 30, 40 years. And it's a daunting issue. We don't know all the solutions yet. We're still, the science is still in its infancy, especially with fresh water. But one of the things I found to go back to your point about uniting people is another silver lining of the plastics issue is that you can see it, unlike some of the chemicals. And it's not only an eyesore, but now we know it's in our water, it's in our fish. We're ingesting about a credit card's worth a month, I believe, is the statistic. And it's in our bodies, it's in our children, it's in placentas, it's on Mount Everest, it's in the Marianas Trench. It's everywhere. And we're just realizing that. And it's, you know, it's too late to put the plastic genie back in the plastic bottle. And so that can be very daunting. But the silver lining is that it doesn't matter how you vote, color your skin, or how much money you have in your bank account. Everyone is equally pissed off at this issue. And it is one of the most unifying things I've seen in this country. David, this is awesome. Thank you so much. It was great to uh, catch up. Thank you, Freddie. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for joining us. To find out more information on David, go to Tennessee River. Uh, Really appreciate you joining us today. If you want to stay in front of what's next, please hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to the podcast or go to Venture Fuel on LinkedIn. We drop all sorts of information on our upcoming interviews as well as insights on how corporations and startups can collaborate for good. As I mentioned earlier in the show, if you would like to receive a copy of our collaboration for good presentation that we gave at our sustainability summit. I would be happy to send that to you. Just shoot a note to us at Venture Fuel on LinkedIn, and we'll get it over to you. Until next time.